All right, well, thank you. Good morning, TBA. How are you all today? Good. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, like she said, my name is Dave Shive. I'm one of the pastors here at TBA. And if you were with us last week, we started a new series called Elephant in the Church. And the idea and the concept around this series was to talk about those things that we all know are going on or issues that we know exist, but for whatever reason, we seem to ignore them. And so our hope is during this series that we're going to be able to address some of these elephants in the church, to look at them openly and honestly and begin to deal with the issues that really that hold us back from being the people that God has called us to be and really holding us back from being the church that God has called us to be. So let me just review real quickly last week what Brian talked about. If you remember, Brian talked about the elephant of comparison and the dangers that come with comparing ourselves to others. See, comparing ourselves to others causes us to either have pride because we feel superior to other people, or it causes us to feel insecure because we don't measure up to others. And both sides of that comparison coin, both sides are sin because it means we've taken our eyes off of the one who gives us our identity, that being Christ. And the cure for comparison that Brian said was to get our focus back on God, to know who we are in him, and to glorify and thank him for all that he's done in our lives. If you weren't here for that message last week, if you haven't heard it, I recommend that you would go to our website, download the message, or go to our podcast and get the message and listen to it. It was a very powerful message that I think everybody needs to listen to, so I encourage you to do that. All right, well today we're going to continue with our series, and the elephant we're going to be talking about today is the elephant of pretending, and the elephant of pretending. Now before we get started, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been let down or disappointed in something that wasn't what you thought it was supposed to be or what it was advertised to be? Let me give you an example. When I was a kid, I used to read comic books all the time. And in the back of those comic books were these ads for really cool stuff. And one of the ads that I used to look at was this. It's an ad for sea monkeys. Does anybody remember sea monkeys? I remember reading that ad and saying to myself, that has got to be the coolest thing on the face of the planet. I had to have those sea monkeys. Who wouldn't want little bitty sea creatures that build their own houses and interact with each other and create their own little sea monkey society? Little sea monkey families doing sea monkey things. That says they can even be trained. I don't know if you can see it. It says they're eager to please. You can even train them. Who wouldn't want that? That is so cool. So I saved up my $1.25 and my 50 cents for shipping, and I sent my order form in. Six weeks later, my sea monkeys finally come up. They come in, and I set everything up, and I follow all the instructions, and I'm waiting for the magic to happen. And every day, I would look in on my little sea monkeys to see if there were signs of life, to see if there were beginning constructions on their sea monkey cities. After a few weeks, it dawned on me, there wasn't going to be sea monkey cities. I'd been duped. There was no cities. There were no sea monkey families. There was nothing that the ad promised. Nothing. They were just plain, they were just brine shrimp. That's all they were. I was so disappointed as a child. I was angry. It left a terrible taste in my mouth. See, the company that were selling these sea monkeys... We're trying to pass them off as something they weren't. They were pretending to be this great, amazing pet, but it was a scam. 
It wasn't genuine. It was fake. And it left me hurt, angry, and disillusioned. And see, that's what happens. That's what happens when you're looking for something that is genuine and authentic, but you find out that it's fake. And unfortunately, that happens a lot within the Christian faith. We have a lot of pretenders in the Christian faith. And I would go as far to say as we have pretenders here at TBA sometimes. We know it. We see it played out. But we don't address it. We don't talk about it. It's an elephant that's in our church. And the consequences of it can be very destructive. So what do I mean by being a pretender? What is a pretender? Well, a pretender is somebody who pretends to be a follower of Christ, but the way they live their life does not match up with what they say. It's fake. It's not real. It's not genuine. It's kind of like a a figure at a wax museum. Anybody been to a wax museum? So you go to these wax museums and they have these figures of celebrities and it kind of looks real on the outside, but something is off. And you get a sense that there's something really wrong. And when you get to the inside of it, it's just made of wax. Interestingly enough, the opposite of the word fake is sincere. That word comes from the Latin sine sierra, which means without wax. And the word came about because sculptors would use wax to cover up their imperfections, or they would use wax to fix major mistakes that they made in their sculptures. And so if you wanted a genuine sculpture, you got a sincere sculpture, one that was made without wax. And Jesus talks about pretenders. Pretenders are not something new to us. Jesus talks about them in Matthew 23. So if you've got a Bible or you've got your Bible app, go ahead and open up to Matthew 23, And we're going to look at a number of verses in that chapter. And we're going to start with verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. So who are these teachers of law and Pharisees? Although the precise origins of the Pharisees is unknown, they appeared sometime before the middle of the second century BC. There was as many as 6,000 of them. Many of them were also scribes. They were authorities in Jewish law, both traditional and scriptural The Pharisees were by far the most dominant religious group in Israel in Jesus' day. And they were the most popular with the masses. It was the teachers of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees that the people looked to for religious guidance and authority. See, they were the ones with the knowledge of who God was. They were the ones who were supposed to recognize Jesus as Messiah. They were the ones who were supposed to point others to Christ. But somewhere along the way, they got caught up in doing things their own way instead of God's way. And their their hearts were not his. And it became all about them. And Jesus continues in verse 5. He says, everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside. And they wear robes with extra long tassels. And they love to sit at the head of the table at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. And they love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi. Now, if you're like me, you've probably read this before. 
And you've probably what I, said what I've said in the past, and that's, man, these Pharisees, they're bad guys. They're horrible. I mean, how can you miss Jesus who is sitting right in front of you? How can you miss that? And I'm really quick to pass judgment on them and distance myself from any similarities that might be between them and myself. But before we get too cocky, let's go back. Because I want to reread this passage. And I, I put it in my own language. So this isn't the Bible. This is Dave chapter 1. So just bear with me. All right? This is my own words kind of thing. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, those Christians and church attenders, they are the ones who should know my words. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They demand that people clean themselves up and live a perfect life. But yet they never take the time to be involved, to actually help somebody because it's messy and it interferes with their comfort. Everything they do is for show. They wear t-shirts with Christian slogans. Their cars are adorned with a fish license plate and a bumper sticker that proclaims a faith they do not practice. They love to sit in church in their presumed reserved seats to see and be seen. They love to feel good about themselves as they attend and serve at a church and to be called faithful. See, that, looks, that hits a little closer to home, doesn't it? See, Jesus really wants to expose who these pretenders are. And he goes on to say in verse 13, he talks a little bit more about them. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. Calls them hypocrites. For you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves and you don't let others enter either. See, the sad fact is, is it's Christians. Christians that lead people to Christ, but it's also Christians that drive them away from Christ. And honestly, you can't blame those that walk away. We have to carry that blame. Why would anybody take Christ seriously if we, as his representatives, are living a life that are contrary to his teachings? Gandhi used to quote the teachings of Jesus all the time. And somebody said to him, Mr. Gandhi, though you quote the words of Christ often, why is it that you appear to so adamantly reject becoming his follower? And Gandhi replied, oh, I don't reject your Christ. Actually, I love your Christ. It's just that so many of you Christians are so unlike your Christ. Christians today are known more for things they stand against than things we stand for. We get wrapped up into forcing morality into people's lives that we forget that they're lost without the love of Jesus. Our concern becomes more about their behavior instead of, the, instead of the condition of their heart. I mean, how did we get so far away from what Christ was about? Because the truth is, it doesn't matter what side of an issue you stand on. It doesn't matter if you believe abortion is right or wrong. It doesn't matter if you believe homosexuality or transgender issues are right or wrong. It doesn't matter what side of the coin you stand on. If you don't have Christ, both of you are going to hell. Look at what he says in verse 23. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, 
mercy, faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. You blind guides. You strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. See, they were so concerned with being right in the eyes of men that they would even tithe the smallest of herbs from their garden. But they missed things like justice and mercy and faith. And these Jewish leaders, they lost sight of their real purpose and their responsibility to God. And that was to bring righteousness into the world. Not simply perpetuate religious activity and burdens. See, Jesus didn't denounce the tithing of herbs, which which would have been okay. It would have been perfectly acceptable if done in sincerity and faith. In fact, he says, yes, you should do that. But don't forget who God is. Don't forget the heart of God. And the same goes for us. See, our responsibility is to bring the love of Jesus into this world, to show and give the amazing grace that has been poured out on us, to show people around us, people in desperate need of a Savior, what being saved looks like. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't concern ourselves with the moral issues that our world faces today, because we should, we need to. But if that's all we focus on, if all we do is concern ourselves with the sin and we forget about the heart of the sinner, then we've missed the point of grace. We've missed the point of grace. And we start to look like what Jesus says in 27. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, there's a difference between a Christian who is struggling with sin and a hypocrite. A Christian who is struggling with sin comes to God and says, God, this is my weakness in life and I really need the help of the Holy Spirit to deal with it. And God welcomes that prayer and he promises to help. But a hypocrite doesn't really struggle to overcome his sin. He just tries to hide it. He thinks, well, when I'm in church, I'll behave like a Christian. I'll say the prayers and I'll sing the songs and I'll obey the rules. But when I'm out in the world, I'm going to act differently and behave exactly like those around me. In fact, the word that's translated as hypocrite in the New Testament is the Greek word hypocrites. And this word literally means to describe actors in a Greek play. It's an actor playing a role, somebody wearing a mask to misrepresent reality. And before you start to think, well, these things don't apply to me, let me give you the best definition of hypocrisy that I've heard today. Okay, and you can write this down. Hypocrisy is the gap between what we believe and how we act. It is the gap between what we believe and how we act. In other words, if I believe that I should be producing fruits of the Spirit like self-control and patience, but I'm constantly exploding in anger and my language is like a sailor, then there's a gap of hypocrisy there. If I believe in forgiveness, but I'm unwilling to forgive when, those, when others wound me, then there's a gap of hypocrisy. If I believe that the Bible 
is the word of God, but I pick and choose what parts of it I want to be obedient to, then there's a gap of hypocrisy. If I believe gossip is destructive, but I'm always in other people's business trying to figure out all that's going on, then there's a gap. If I believe that being part of this church body is necessary for my spiritual growth, but I only attend once a month, there's a gap. If I believe that God is my provider for all things, but I don't give regularly and proportionally back to him, then there's a gap. If I believe that spreading the gospel of Christ is my main mission and objective, and as followers of Christ, that's what we're supposed to do, but I am not living sin and investing in those around me and telling them about Jesus, then there's a gap. There's a gap. And the truth is, all of us are or have been guilty of being a hypocrite at one time or another. The question is, are we doing anything about it? Because if it goes on unchecked, if we treat it like an elephant in the room and never address it, then it can become very damaging and cause a lot of problems. And so real quickly with the time we have left, I want to give you three areas that hypocrisy causes major problems. And I want to give you some ways to change that, to combat that. And the first one is this. Hypocrisy hurts our relationship with God. It hurts our relationship with God. Matthew 23 is one of the most serious passages in all of Scripture. And here Jesus makes the word hypocrite a synonym for scribe and Pharisee. He calls them sons of hell, blind guides, fools, robbers, self-indulgent, whitewashed tombs, serpents, vipers, persecutors, and murderers of God's people. I think it's pretty clear that God does not like a hypocrite. Because a hypocrite is a person who hides or ignores their sin and lives with an unrepented heart. See, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, but your life does not reflect obedience to him, and your heart is unrepentant, you have to question. You have to question, are you truly his follower? 1 John 1, 6 says, if we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice truth. Psalm 107 says, no one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Jesus even says on judgment day, there are going to be people that call him Lord, Lord, but he tells them to depart because he doesn't know them. It's a dangerous path to walk. It's a dangerous place to be. Now, I'm not trying to get you to question your salvation, but the truth is, if you're not living and walking a spirit-filled life, if you're numb to the conviction of the Holy Spirit when you sin to the point that you just ignore him, then I would say for the sake of your soul, you might want to question where you are. You might want to question where you are. Am I really a follower of Christ? Am I really his? And I can tell you how to start to answer that. Because the answer to an unrepentant heart, the answer to hidden sin, sin that we hide away is confession. It's confession. If we truly desire change, confession needs to be a part of our life. And it needs to be a twofold confession. First, to God, because he already knows what we've done and he just wants us to acknowledge it before him. But the second is one that we're commanded to do, but we rarely follow through. And that's to confess to a trusted Christian brother or sister who can hold us accountable. 
James 5.16 says this, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The power of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And while it is of utmost importance that we confess our sins to God, I believe that it is just as important that we confess to one another. And I don't mean just confess to any random person that you meet in the lobby. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about go to somebody you know, somebody you trust, somebody you know who's going to walk with you. Let me give you an example of what I mean. There was a point in time in my life when I was caught in the trap of this particular sin. And I would commit this sin over and over again. And every time I would do it, I would feel immense uh, guilt and shame. And I'd get on my knees and I would confess my sin to God and I would ask for forgiveness. And my heart would truly be repentant. And I would vow to God that I'm never gonna do it again. It would be the last time. And that would last for a little while. But inevitably I would fall again, but this time with more guilt and more shame. And yes, I believe God forgave me each and every time that I asked him for forgiveness. But I never received healing. Listen to me. I never received healing for the consequences of that sin. And I was never able to change my direction and my behavior and overcome it. And I felt defeated and weak. And I felt like a disappointment to God. And I felt like a disappointment in my ministry. And that's what the enemy does. See, he wants, he wants you to think that you're the only one that struggles with a sin. Satan wants you to feel isolated, abandoned, and alone. But we're not. We're not alone. God didn't design us to be alone. We're designed to be in community with each other. God designed you and I to help each other, to support each other, to pray for each other, to encourage each other. But we've got to seek that help out, first from God, and second, from our brothers and sisters in Christ. So what I did is I went to the two guys I trust the most. That's Brian and Brian. And I told them about my struggle. And not only did I not get the condemnation that I was expecting, I found two brothers that were struggling as well. And here's the cool thing. Here's the cool thing. Now there were no longer three isolated men trapped in the power of isolation. Now there were three united men, ready to fight off the enemy. And a cord of three is not easily broken. And we began to pray for each other, and we began to hold each other accountable, and we began to, to ask each other the really, really hard questions, the dig down deep hard questions. And through that process, not only did I find forgiveness from God, but I found healing as well. I found healing as God worked through his people and it changed my way of thinking and it changed my behavior and it changed my direction. We have to confess. Here's the second problem with hypocrisy. It leads other believers astray. It leads other believers astray. Flip over to Galatians chapter two. Paul is talking about a confrontation that he has with Peter in chapter 2 because Peter was living a hypocritical life. And in chapter 2, verse 11, it says, But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterwards, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. 
He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led away by their hypocrisy. Now you might read this and say, well, what's the big deal about who Peter eats with? Why is that a big deal? Well, it was a big deal. It was a huge deal. Because Peter was in a position of authority. He was an apostle, and he was the leader of the Jerusalem church. He had influence. And his decision to separate himself from the Gentiles not only caused hurt among his Gentile brothers, but it also told everybody else that the Gentiles were second-class citizens in God's kingdom. And he was splitting the church of Antioch in two. Not by his words, but by his actions. And he was leading others to do the same. Now you may think that you don't have that kind of influence. And I would say that you're wrong. You're wrong. All of us have influence. All of us do. I tell the kids and youth this all the time. They have influence. Everybody has influence. The question is, will we use that influence positively or negatively? Because the way you live your life, listen to me, the way you live your life can lead others to live the same way. If you're a person that's involved in gossiping, then as you go about your gossip, you are going to pull others into it because that's the nature of gossip. It takes two people to gossip. If you move in with your boyfriend or girlfriend before marriage, then those in your influence may think it's okay and they might do the same thing when the Bible clearly says it's not okay. Living a hypocritical life will influence those around you. Your decisions have consequences. They have consequences, not just for yourself, but for others as well. The way to combat that is to offer truth, offer and receive truth and grace. To offer and receive truth and grace. Look at verse 14. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel, this is still Paul. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow Jewish traditions? See, Paul was willing to confront Peter. He was willing to risk the friendship that he had with Peter to address the sin in Peter's life. And he did it for two reasons. One, he loved the Lord and he was willing to always stand up for what's right. He saw the devastating effects that Peter's actions was having on the church in Antioch and so he confronts Peter about it. But the second reason, and I think just as important even more so, was because he loved Peter. He loved him too much to continue to allow him to keep on sinning. Wait a minute, are you saying that we should confront our brothers and sisters when they're openly sinning? Isn't that judging? Didn't Jesus said, don't judge lest you be judged? Well, the answer is yes, yes to both questions. Jesus did say that, but it's also one of those verses in the Bible that is always, almost always, taken completely out of context. Because Jesus goes on to suggest it's not the act of judging, but the attitude in which we do it that God is most concerned about. And the Bible clearly states that we have a responsibility to hold each other. As followers of Christ, we have a responsibility to hold each other accountable. And I would suggest 
that we need more, not less judgment in the church. We need more. We as Americans suffer from a fear of judging. Passing judgment on the behavior of others is considered intolerant and closed-minded. Why? Because our culture tells us it's that way. We live by our own individualistic self-set standard, and we do not believe that there are objective standards by which to judge. And when there are no standards, there's nothing which to measure behavior by. But for those of us who follow Christ, we know there's only one standard. It's God's standard. And judgment for Christians, listen to me, judgment for Christians is an important piece of work that God calls us to do. Especially in a world that's going crazy. But it has to be done with the right motivation. Because judgments are opinions that we form only after we've made serious effort to know the facts. And only after we've consulted the scriptures. And only after we have prayed for a spirit-informed discernment. Because any fool can have an opinion. Any lazy or biased fool can have an opinion. But making judgments is the hard work. It's the hard work of responsible, compassionate, and loving people. And love is the key to truth and grace. Love means being willing to say the hard truth to somebody you care about. It means being willing to risk the relationship because you love them and you don't want them to stay where they are. But love also means offering grace because grace has been given to us in abundance. You can't just have truth without grace. Truth without grace is just prideful judgment. You can't have grace without truth because grace without truth is simply acceptance. They have to go hand in hand, grace and truth. Lastly, the third problem with hypocrisy is this. It hurts our ability to carry out the mission. The Pharisees in Jesus' time were the ones that should have recognized the Messiah. They were the ones that should have been bringing others to him. But instead of their self-righteous attitudes and their unrepentant hearts caused them to push people away. And many people went down a path of eternal destruction because of them. We have a responsibility to be a living witness of Jesus Christ to this world. You are the only Bible that some people will ever see. You hear what I'm saying? You are the only Bible that some people will ever see. Paul says as much in Corinthians. He says this, the only letter of recommendation we need is you yourselves. Your lives are written Your lives are a letter written on our hearts. Everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. Clearly, you are a letter from Christ showing the result of our ministry among you. This letter is written not with pen and ink, but with the spirit of the living God. And it's carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. There's this really cool book called The Prodigal God. It's by Timothy Keller. I highly recommend you get it and read it. It's an amazing book. It goes into great detail to study and discuss the story of the prodigal son. You guys remember the story of the prodigal son? The son leaves home, lives his life terribly, comes back, and the father accepts him back into his home. Well, one of the concepts that he talks about in this book is that the church 
is full of the older brother. You remember the older brother in the story? The church is full of older brothers. And the truth is, is if the older brother had run into the younger brother first, if the older brother had gotten to the younger brother first before the father got there, then the younger brother would have never made it into the house. He'd have never made it in. If you're living as a pretender, a wax substitute, if you're living a hypocritical life, then you're the older brother and you're a modern day Pharisee and you are damaging the mission that we have all been called to do. Because like it or not, we all get painted with the same brush. So when the world sees Christians living no different than everybody else, all of us lose credibility. When the world sees Christians preaching hate and condemnation, all of us lose credibility. When the world sees Christians unwilling to leave their bubble of safety, to reach out and love and serve and sacrifice for a community that desperately needs hope, all of us lose credibility. So the answer to that is we need to close the gap. Band, you guys can come up. We need to close the gap. We need to close the gap between what we believe and the way that we act. Because when the world sees Christians broken and imperfect, but yet repentive and depending wholly on God, then God's mercy is glorified. When the world sees Christians preaching the love and sacrifice of Jesus, then grace in God is glorified. And when the world sees Christians sacrificing and serving and investing and getting outside of these church walls and willing to jump feet first into the messy needs of others, then God is glorified and his kingdom will grow. We have to close the gap. We all have gaps and we need to work on closing them. So let's close the gap and be what God's called us to be, a living sacrifice, a testimony to this world of Jesus' wondrous love and grace. Let us be the church that God's called us to be, that he's called TBA to be, the living hands and feet of Jesus to a community and a world that needs him desperately. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, you have called us to be a representation of your love and your grace and your mercy, Lord. God, many times we don't live up to that. We don't live up to the calling you've put on us. God, forgive us for that. Forgive us for doing horrible things in your name. Lord, help us to close the gap between what we believe and the way that we act so that we represent you right, so that we reflect the image of your son, Jesus. God, help us to honor the calling and the responsibility that you've given us to go out into this world and show Jesus' love. God, you put it on us. There's no other plan. We are the plan. Father, help us to live up to that, to do that. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.